and welcome to the Healed Podcast, the place where we can talk about all things food, body, and mind from an anti-diet and weight-inclusive lens. My name is Marie-Pierre, or you can call me Marie, and I am your host. I'm a registered dietitian with a background in psychology, and I specialize in food relationship and body image. And I am the founder and CEO of The Balance Practice, a treatment center for eating disorder and disordered eating. Every week on the podcast, you will hear from myself, the team at The Balance Practice, and other providers who have dedicated their careers in supporting folks to have better relationship with food and their bodies. On this podcast, we aim to provide a safe space to have these deep and juicy conversations regarding eating disorder, disordered eating recovery, health, relationship, body image, and honestly, anything we believe will support you in living your big, beautiful life. We believe in the power of healing, and hopefully this podcast will be a great addition to your toolbox in your healing journey. Thank you for tuning in today, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome back to the Healed Podcast. I hope that we are all doing well today. Before we get into this podcast episode, I just wanted to make a quick note, a quick talk about all of the things that are happening in the world. And, you know, I am definitely not an expert on this. I definitely don't know as much as, you know, potentially a lot of other people. But I also just don't want to stay silent and say nothing about it because I also find that, you know, silence may not be the most helpful thing either. I can speak for myself and folks at The Balance Practice that our heart are just so heavy with the intensity of the violence that is happening. I think for many of our clients, many of our folks, this has just been a very difficult time in seeing what, you know, humanity can be capable of can be such a such a difficult thing to witness. So with everything happening and the intensity of the violence that we are seeing that we're witnessing, you know, our heart really goes to all of those who have been suffering, all the innocent lives that have been lost. And as for us and for a reminder that, you know, when things like this happen in the world or when maybe you are being activated and your stress is really high, that, you know, the eating disorder may show up more loudly this week and may have been louder. When things like this happen where, again, like our systems can get activated, the eating disorder can come in a way of trying to support. It can be there as a way to cope, provide stability in a world that can often feel very unstable. And we just want to offer you kindness and compassion and trying our best to be kind to ourselves as all of this is happening. Understanding where maybe, you know, the disordered eating patterns and the eating disorder is coming back to try to protect ourselves. And as a reminder to all that no matter how we feel, no matter if we have, you know, our hunger or not, our our body requires nourishment. So if you are having a harder time, please, please do connect to your care team, connect to your loved ones and really support yourself in continuously engaging in the recovery behaviors. At the practice here, we are continuing with our content on eating disorder treatment because unfortunately, eating disorders don't take a break. Eating disorders continue to exist and we want to continue to offer the best treatment to folks across here on Ontario 
Ontario. And today we have a really good podcast episode on the role of family in eating disorder care. Here at The Balance Practice, we do really believe in family support when it comes to eating disorder care. Uh, We have a family support program that really supports parents and partners in supporting their loved one in their recovery journey. We know that recovering from an eating disorder is really difficult. So engaging your family support can be quite an amazing step in your recovery process. Today, I'm really excited because we have Bryn Miller, who is with us on the podcast to talk about family and support systems in eating disorder recovery. Bryn is a certified eating disorder specialist, advanced certified therapist in emotion-focused family therapy as well, which is EFFT. So Bryn Miller is really a wealth of knowledge when it comes to family support. Not only is she a therapist, certified eating disorder care, certified in emotion-focused family therapy, she's also the secretary of the Denver Metro IADEP chapter, which is the International Association for Eating Disorder Professionals and volunteers for the nonprofit for the Eating Disorder Foundation, where she runs free groups for caregivers. With nearly a decade of working with adolescents and young adults with eating disorders alongside their parents and caregivers at every level of care, Bryn is really passionate about supporting people to explore and heal their relationship with food and their body. Bryn approaches her work both with individuals and their loved ones with the goal of whole family food healing. Separate from her private practice in Denver, Bri also empowers and educates parents nationally through on-demand coaching program and live virtual workshops via her online Bryn Miller parent coaching platform. When Bryn is not working, she's writing, meditating, embarrassing her herself in hip-hop dance classes and trying to keep up with her two small children. I'm really excited that you're going to get to hear Bryn and connect with Bryn. Again, she's such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to family support and eating disorder care. So I hope that you're really going to love this podcast. Hey, Bryn, how are you today? I am great. I'm great. I'm very excited to be here, excited to connect with you and sit down and kind of talk about all these things. I am so pumped to have you on the podcast. I think this is going to be a really cool episode for everyone here. So we're really pumped. But before we get into today's today's topic, my God, today's topic, (laughs) um, I had too much coffee today. There's no (laughs) such thing. That's that's true. That is true. Is, Is there there actually a limit? Like, I don't think so. I don't think so. Just like bring it on, you know? <laughs> okay. I, I'm going off track a little bit, but I did a DNA test that told me that it was a very fast, like caffeine metabolizer or whatever. So oh. I actually don't have a limit of coffee I can drink because my body just goes through it. Like it's. That's yeah. amazing. I don't know if that's a, yeah. if that's like a blessing or a curse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just use it as my excuse of like, I don't have a limit of caffeine. I can take a day. Totally. You really rack up those uh, Starbucks bills, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. My wallet has a limit, but not my yes. body. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right. So before we get into this podcast episode, um, I'd love to know more about you. So if you could tell us maybe about like who you are, what you do and what got you to do the work that you do today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think everybody's path to this is always a little bit different, but for me kind of starting way back when, when I was growing up, I was always really into theater and acting. And so that was a huge part of my life when I was younger and actually went to college as a theater major and then spent some time in LA, in Hollywood, doing that whole thing for a few years. I 
kind of looking back, realized that my draw to that and my interest in that was really fascination with other people's lives and other people's stories. And that acting was just sort of my way at the time, really empathizing with other people and, and what makes each of us tick. And so as I was kind of going through that process and then kind of came to this realization of like, okay, I don't want to do this whole acting thing for the rest of my life. Like this is a little, you know, this is a little tricky for me. It was a pretty quick realization that I wanted to be a therapist and I wanted to get into psychology and that that was just another way to kind of explore people's stories and explore, you know, how other people experience the world. And so some people are like, oh my gosh, that's so weird to go from acting to being a therapist. And I'm like, oh no, to me, it makes perfect sense, you know, because it's all about, it's all about empathy and it's all about understanding what it's like to be you. Right. And so, yeah, so that was sort of my background. And then, you know, being in the entertainment industry and, and kind of having years of doing that and really seeing how powerful and toxic those messages are that, that come out of, you know, our entertainment and what bodies are okay and what bodies aren't okay and who gets featured and who doesn't. And just really this expectation, especially for women around perfection and beauty and that really being kind of the standard in Hollywood. And so when I decided to go back to school to become a therapist, I knew kind of immediately like eating disorders is what I want to do. And so I've really spent my entire career working in eating disorders and I absolutely love it. I I just, I, I feel so lucky and so grateful that I've found something to do professionally that doesn't feel at all like work, <laughs> but really feels like such an honor to be let into people's lives in this way. And so when I started with eating disorders, I was in New York City and I'd had the opportunity to work at a program called Mount Sinai. And one of the things that we did there was family-based treatment. And that's really kind of based around supporting adolescents that are struggling with eating disorders. And one of the things that we do as part of that is really involve the parents and caregivers. And as I was doing that work, I, I just totally fell in love with the family working with the family system, working with the adolescent, but also working with the parents and caregivers. And so that was sort of my jumping off point into doing this work. And then since then, I've worked at all levels of care. I've worked with, you know, the whole lifespan, but really still kind of heavily focus on doing a lot of work with parents and caregivers for people of all ages. And so, you know, from childhood through adolescence, through young adulthood, all the way to supporting parents and caregivers who have adult children struggling with eating disorders. And one of the things that I really, really love about that work is sort of feeling like a, a, a liaison or a bridge, if you will, between being able to hold space for the person struggling with the eating disorder and also their support system in a way that that really ideally allows them to come back to each other, you know, and to kind of find each other through the struggle that is this. And so one of the big influences on my work is something called emotion-focused family therapy. I see, yeah, I see nodding. <laughs> so yeah, I've been very lucky that my, my mentor, Elizabeth Easton, and then also one of the co-founders of EFFT, Adele LaFrance, who's Canadian, you know, have been a huge influence on me and my work. And so EFFT is really about empowering parents and caregivers, again, with children of any age, to support their loved ones in ways that, that feels more effective. 
And so we get parents and caregivers out of this cycle of feeling really ineffective and, and unhelpful, you know, while also making a ton of space that it's a very complicated relationship for the individual, especially when it comes to food and bodies and family history and all of that. And so really kind of trying to make space with both of those. So yeah, that's a, that's a little bit of my, my path and my passion. And so I have a private practice in Colorado, but also kind of serve people on a national and international level through the parent coaching work that I do. I love all of that so much. (laughs) First of all, thank you so much for sharing with us. Love your journey too, how you went from acting to being a therapist. I totally see that. Like, I totally see it of like wanting to do that. And then kind of seeing like, oh, what I like is like getting to know people and that understanding of like humans, which is like so freaking cool. Um, So I love that so, so much. And I feel like we often say with our clients, like the eating disorder impacts the person, but it really is a type of chronic illness that impacts the the family unit as a whole. So the work that you're doing is just so important. So I'm really excited to dive deeper today and talking about the role of families. So I'm curious if we went just from like a get-go, like if we back it up and just think about, you know, someone who lives with an eating disorder, like how would you describe the role of the family in eating disorder treatment? I mean, it's a great question. And I think the first thing that I, that, you know, before we kind of dive in and and unpack that, I really, I I really want to say that it's different for every person and it's different for every family. Right. And so, and I'm sure you see that in your work and your practice and that what's right for one person and and one family system is is not going to work or or be right for someone else. And so one of the big things that that I think is so important and that I really try and be mindful of in my work is that a huge part of this is empowering the individual that's struggling and also empowering the family system. So, you know, I always say with people I work with, if I say something and it just doesn't sit right with you, throw it throw it out, you know? like take what's helpful and leave what is not helpful that really so much of this is about getting parents and caregivers kind of back in touch with their gut and their intuition and that an eating disorder I mean all mental health issues but an eating disorder really has this way of kind of like turning everything upside down you know and it really reorganizes the family like you said it's it's the individual suffering but it's also the whole system and so you know really trying to help and empower parents to kind of get back to trusting themselves and trusting their gut and their intuition. And so I always say, take what I say, filter it through what you know to be true for your family. Yeah, no. And I I love that so much, that piece of like, I think with everything, right, that like everything is so unique and individualized. And even with eating disorder care, what I find really interesting is like somebody who develops an eating disorder, like it's so multifactorial. So the treatment is also, you know, no multiple layers and is different for everybody too. Absolutely. Like it's not just one thing that gets to that place. Right. And so the way out of it is not going to be just one thing. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be so simple. And so, yeah. And I think, you know, especially as we're learning, you know, or unlearning, if you will, more and more about how our, our systems and our treatment and even how we test certain types of therapy is so steeped in, you know, racism and misogyny and so many of these kind of historical influences that really empowering parents to feel like they can kind of approach this in a way that feels right for them in 
so many different ways. It's just so, so important. And so I think one, like the first thing when I sit down with a family is to just start with, you know, making sure that we're all on the same page, that we know that parents don't cause eating disorders. The eating disorders are so, like you said, complicated and multifactorial and complex. And there's such genetic and epigenetic and cultural influences. There's just so much that goes into it. And so, you know, I think way back when in eating disorders, it used to be like, oh, that's your mom's fault, you know? (laughs) And so we really have a long history where, and usually mom and not dad, you know, for a million different reasons that we would just blame the parents when Mm -hmm. someone was struggling with something like this and even say, okay, we need to separate this person from their family because clearly, you know, the family is toxic. And so we've done a beautiful job I think in so many ways of really debunking that and really coming to parents and caregivers and saying, you did not cause this. This is not your fault. And there is so much that you can do to help. And so I I say very often that parents, caregivers, families, you know, spouses, partners, whatever it is, are some of the most important people on the treatment team. The most hundred percent. Right. Because even with us an outpatient rate, like we see clients like one one to four hours per week. And like the rest of the time, you know, they are with their families. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, you've got, you've got, they've got so much more access. And so, like you said, even, even in really intense outpatient, it's like maybe four hours a week. Right. Whereas like the rest of the time you're really in the environment with your family. And so if we can help them be a better support to you, oh my gosh, that's just going to put you in such a, in such a better space to be mm-hmm. able to work through your own recovery process. And so, yeah, it's, it's huge. And so really, really kind of starting from this place of it's not your fault. And how do we empower you to be the best possible support? Because I think one of the other tricky things is that for a variety of reasons, and we can dive into those if we want, I think oftentimes parents are doing things that they think are helpful. And yet the person with the eating disorder is like, ah, this is making it worse (laughs) or this is driving me crazy. And so it's like, okay, great. How do we make space and really help you guys communicate about about what does support look like for you and what is helpful and what is not helpful. And so that's a huge piece of it too, because like we said, yeah. it's so different for every person. Oh, totally. And I know for us, it's often a barrier. We're like, oh, I don't want my parents to be involved because they do this thing and it's not working. We're like, wait, no, the reason we want them involved is that so we can teach them differently. <laughs> it's actually supportive for you. <laughs> so I'm curious, like a family comes in and we're like, okay, the role of the family is extremely important in eating disorder care. How would that look like? Like what would their role look like in supporting someone with an ED. Yeah. Hey, hey, I hope that you're loving this podcast as much as I do, but I wanted to stop this podcast to let you know about our eating disorder recovery program. At The Balance Practice here, we support folks across Ontario in recovering from their eating disorder from the comfort of their home. We also include family support and the eating disorder recovery. As you're learning through this podcast, family support can be quite important in the recovery process. So if you are interested in recovering from your eating disorder and involving your family in your care, The Balance Practice may be the right place for you. You can go to www.thebalancepractice.com forward slash ED program. All right, let's get back to the episode. 
it really, I'm going to say it again, it depends. It really depending on kind of where we are on, on a couple of different spectrums, right? And so if you are supporting a loved one that's, you know, 12 years old, for example, versus a loved one that's 40, then what your involvement is going to look like is going to be really different, right? For a lot of different reasons, you might not live in the home with them anymore. They might have their own family that, that they live with, you know, and your connection might be a phone call a couple times a week, right? Versus if you're the parent of a 12-year-old, maybe you're in charge of every meal and every snack. Maybe you're eating with them for every meal and snack as we kind of do in the family-based or FBT kind of model. So really depending on where the person struggling is along that spectrum of age is a big piece, but also where they are in terms of the severity of how much support do they need and how much support is helpful. And so depending on where you are in your recovery process, that might change week to week or day to day. And sort of starting with, okay, you know, I think I can handle this with, you know, my weekly meeting with my therapist and my dietitian, and I'll kind of check in and I just want my parents there as a support, you know, and then that might shift to like, oh, I actually, you know, it'd be really helpful if they check in with me about certain meals or if they sit with me after a meal, you know, different things that might be, that might be really helpful. And so you're mm-hmm. always kind of trying to figure out the parent and your caregiver involvement is, you know, really kind of dependent on where the person is that's struggling and what level are they open to it? Because especially if you're talking about an adult, you get to decide who's involved in your treatment and how they support you and what does that look like, right? But oftentimes I'll work with, even even if you have someone that says, I don't want my family involved, oftentimes I will work with parents and caregivers that are in that situation and say, even if your loved one's saying they don't want you involved, can you and I do some work on, you know, maybe what the history is there. Can we put some tools in your toolbox? Is it something that we want to look into perhaps doing a therapeutic apology around? There's all these different kind of EFFT interventions that we have so that even for someone who's saying, I don't want my family involved, that we can still support the family and that if things change or if there's an opportunity for repair, they're ready, you know, and they've done a lot of the work to sort of unpack what has maybe gotten the family to that place where there's that lack of involvement or there's that feeling of, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't want you involved in this. And it gets really complicated. I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's really so much about honoring what is the experience for the person that's struggling with the eating disorder and also what is the experience for the parent or caregiver? And can we hold mm-hmm. space for both of those? And if possible, and if helpful, find a way kind of back to one another. Mm. I love the way that you're putting that. We often will work from that model too, of like when the parents come in or the partner comes in that like, there's like two layers of work. There's the work you do to be a supportive person yeah. for your loved one, but then there's your work. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's like all the unpacking we need to do with you because you also live in diet culture and have been subjected to all these messages and all of these things that like, even if you did not develop an eating disorder, like those need to be addressed. Absolutely. And we see that so much, you know, I'll have parents 
in my office <clears throat> where, you know, they'll say, I brought my child to Weight Watchers when they were six, or I restricted food in the house, or I made comments about their bodies, right? And the, the parent or caregiver is struggling with so much of their own shame and self-blame around those behaviors. Um, and so, you know, how do we, how do we really help you work through that and also hold space for the fact that you know, the parent or caregiver or spouse or partner, just like you said, we all live in this toxic diet culture. We, none of us are immune to weight stigma and weight bias and all of the things that we're sort of absorbing in the air that we breathe and how often, you know, that parent that will say, I brought my child to Weight Watchers. And then that child, you know, is now in my office with an eating disorder. When we unpack, you know, their history, how often there were really strong messages from that parent's parents about food Mm -hmm. and weight and bodies. And then those parents' parents, right? So we really think of it as this kind of intergenerational messaging that gets Mm -hmm. passed down also sort of reinforced by the toxic culture that we live in. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I kind of going back to what you said at the beginning, like, and with all of that, like, it's still not, you know, like it's not causality. Like it's not because they went to Weight Watchers that they have an eating disorder, like potentially and most likely a contributing factor. And it is something that we can take ownership on and like do our own work around. And like, cause I hear that all the time too, like parents will like blame themselves like so excessively. And it's, it's really difficult. I think like as a parent, like believing that you've caused harm to your child, especially if you thought that like, I mean, at that time, you probably thought that it was the right thing to do to bring them to Weight Watchers. Um, So kind of like continuing to uncouple, like there's many folks who've been to Weight Watchers and don't have an eating disorder. It's a contributing factor, but not, you know, didn't cause the ED. And now we get to do repair. Exactly. Exactly. And I think being able to, to sit and hold that space with parents Mm. and caregivers where they say like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did X, Y, and Z. No, what I know now. And one of the big tenets with EFFT is, and that I believe in my bones, and especially now that I'm a parent myself, I (laughs) I really know is that we're all doing the best we can with what we have in the moment. And so, you know, even that, that mom that brought her daughter to Weight Watchers, she absolutely thought she was doing the right thing at the time, based on the information that she had and the pressure she was getting from her pediatrician Mm. and, you know, the culture that we live in. This mom Mm -hmm. really thought she was doing the right thing to take care of and protect and support her daughter at the time. Mm -hmm. And so that we can really honor kind of the difference between intention of, you know, what we do and then that we don't always know the impact of how that might, you know, kind of land for someone. And I do this Mm -hmm. as a parent myself all the time, you know, (laughs) I'm like, okay, you know, given the information I have, I think we're making the right decision now. And then, you know, six months later, it's like, oh gosh, okay, no, Knowing what I know, hindsight's 2020, maybe I would have done something different. And so being able to hold both of those pieces, like you said, this isn't my fault. I didn't cause this. I did the best I could with what I had in the moment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's opportunity to say, I wish I could have done something differently, knowing what I know now, you know, mm-hmm. or have an opportunity for some of that repair or mm-hmm. even that, that, that kind of learning process of like, okay, I see, I see how that maybe wasn't as helpful. What can I learn and how can I do it differently going forward? Mm-hmm. And then that's a place where we're really empowering parents. Yeah. And like how beautiful for, you know, children to be able to see that repair too. And yes. you're like, Hey, we're not always right. And when we're not, here's what we do. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm really curious to hear. So what are, or what do you see in your practice that are like typical challenges or most common challenges that families can have when it comes to supporting someone with a loved one or supporting a loved one with an eating disorder? Yeah. I think there's a few things that I see as kind of the biggest ones. I think one, number one is, is just this, this sense of confusion that comes up Mm. with eating disorders and that parents and caregivers are desperate to help, but they just don't really know what to do. You know, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. And I think that, that often that confusion and that lack of really good information and support that for parents and caregivers, they can feel really lost and they don't know how to be helpful. And that can really kick up a lot of frustration for parents and caregivers. And that kind of leads to the the next thing that I see. So the sort of sense of like, I don't know what to do. I want to help, but how, right, is, is one of the big pieces. Another piece that I see caregivers really struggle with is just getting really escalated and getting really upset. And so, you know, and it's so natural and it's so normal that when someone you love, especially a parent and a child relationship is struggling, it's scary. It's devastating. It's frustrating. You, you feel helpless. You can feel hopeless sometimes, you know, it activates a lot of shame and self-blame. And so in all of that noise, it can be really hard for parents and caregivers to stay calm and support their loved one in a way that is calm because they're freaking out (laughs) because they love their, they love their child so much and their child is struggling. And so really having a hard time kind of accessing their calm is another one. And then one of the last ones I would say, I mean, and there's many, but like one of the big sort of umbrellas is that in that confusion and in that inability to access their calm, that parents and caregivers will sort of forget how to connect with their loved one, really empathize with what they're going through and how this feels to them. And as parents, and I'm so guilty of this myself, as parents, we tend to try and jump in and we want to fix it when our kid is struggling. We don't want them to be in pain. We don't want them to be in crisis. And so we want to get in there and fix it as quickly as possible. But what happens when we do that, especially with someone struggling with an eating disorder, is that we often miss the opportunity to really kind of sit in the dark with them and really make space for what this feels like and come to them with a ton of empathy and a ton of compassion and a ton of understanding that rather than trying to fix it, I really encourage parents and caregivers to feel it with their loved one. And so when their loved one is, you know, in despair, can you feel that with them so that they're not alone in it? And so, you know, those are sort of some of the big things that I really try and help parents and caregivers with, like, how do we address that sense of confusion? How do we get you out of feeling like every moment is a crisis so that you can be more effective? And then how how do you, how do you address that disconnect that happens? And so one of the things that I really, you know, sort of a trifecta that I work on with parents and caregivers is I want to help them access their calm. I want them to help. I want to help them feel more confident when they're supporting their loved one. And all of that supports this connection 
both to their child, but also reconnecting to the parent that they want to be when their child's struggling. And so those are sort of my big things of like calm, confident, and connected, you know, and that that. can really help with some of that confusion and that escalation and just that feeling of not knowing what to do. That's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a lot of big, big emotions too, to hold and to try to parent through. And it's it's so, so difficult. I'm really curious about your five-step framework that you use to support families. Did you want to share that with us too? Yeah, I'd love to. So this was really born out of, it's it's very informed by emotion-focused family therapy. And then also acceptance and commitment therapy is a big, big part of my background as well. But really the idea of the five-step framework is how do we go from that confusion and that crisis into that space of being able to feel calm and confident and connected. And so kind of using a lot of EFFT and then just the, you know, decade of work that I have with parents and caregivers and really, you know, seeing where they get stuck. I put together a five-step framework and it's really designed to kind of be called the response roadmap. And so in those moments, when you want to respond instead of react, you know, and get out of some of those just kind of like automatic knee jerk patterns that we all have, especially when we get escalated, then, you know, having a system, having a step-by-step approach in those moments can help your brain kind of calm just knowing that you've got a plan. Right. And so it starts with this idea of really starting with recognize And that's all about paying attention to what's coming up for you. And so before you even, you know, respond to your loved one in their moment of struggle to take a time out and say, okay, what's coming up for me? What am I feeling? What are the thoughts that I'm having? Because if we don't know what's going on for us, it's really hard for us to respond in a way that's calm and in a way that's confident because those big feelings, like you said, there's so many big feelings and when you're a parent or caregiver and your child is struggling, you're you're gonna your brain is gonna get hijacked really quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And so we need to know what's gonna come up for you because that's gonna make you really vulnerable in that moment. And so the first step is recognize, checking in with yourself about how you're feeling and what's coming up for you. And then also what's driving that, what's sort of the big feelings that are underneath that. And so I talk with parents about, can you pay attention to your nervous system in that moment? Can you pay attention to your narrative, which is like, what's the story your brain is telling you? And can you name it? Can you name it to yourself? Can you name it to your support system so that you have that sense of, okay, I'm getting really frustrated because I'm super scared that my child is not going to be okay. And when we name that, there's this little calm that gets kind of created in our brain because our brain says, oh, okay, now I know what I'm dealing with, right? And then that leads to step two, which is regulate to reconnect. And the regulate part is how do you take a deep breath in the moment? How do you splash some cold water on your face? What is in your kind of crisis coping toolkit to help you in the moment? And this this is kind of similar for clinicians and providers as well, that when you're in a caregiving position, you're going to get really activated in this moment, but you're really there for the other person. And so how are we going to get you calm really quickly so that you can support your loved one? Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, what are the tools that we have to regulate really quickly so that you can reconnect with your values? You can reconnect with who do I want to be as a parent for my child when they're really struggling? 
And then from there, we move into step three, which is respond effectively. And this is sort of the antidote to reacting, right? You know, oh, I'm really scared. I got really frustrated. I yelled at my child, right? The alternative is like, okay, I'm noticing I'm getting frustrated. How do I take a deep breath so I can regulate in the moment and remind myself that I really want to be a solid support system for them? And then when we respond effectively, we're really pulling from that EFFT toolbox of emotion coaching, where we start with validating how they're feeling, you know, and so, hey, I know you're scared because, because, because this is really hard and tricky. I'm here with you. You know, here's what I'm going to do to help on a practical level. And so really empowering parents and caregivers with how do you respond? What do you say and do in those tough moments? And then the next step, step four, is what I call refueling, which is my new version of self-care. I don't talk about it anymore as self-care because after talking to hundreds of caregivers about this, like their eyes glaze over, they like, (laughs) you know, like roll their eyes. Like, it's like, oh, self-care, that's like for somebody that can get massages on the beach, you know, (laughs) like I don't have time for self-care. And so I don't talk about it as self-care anymore with parents and caregivers. I talk about it as refueling of like, you wouldn't drive your car on an empty tank. You wouldn't try and pour, you know, out of a cup that you know is empty. And so we really have to start thinking about this as absolutely non-negotiable. If you are a parent or caregiver, clinician, provider, or if you are taking care of anyone else in your life, as most of us do in different ways, you have to take care of yourself. And so really prioritizing that again and talking through with parents and caregivers or what are the logistical, but also the emotional barriers to Mm -hmm. getting to, you know, to taking care of themselves. And then step five is reflect and repeat. And that's where we kind of take a pause and we say, okay, how did it go? You know, where did it go sideways? Where did it go? Well, what did I learn? And the repeat is really about holding the hope and never giving up. And that eating disorders can be really, really tricky illnesses, which I don't have to tell you. I don't have to tell your listeners. I'm sure it can be a long, bumpy road. And so one of the gifts and one of the beauties of, of, you know, working with parents and caregivers and leveraging the parent and caregiver is that they don't give up. And so how do we, how do we help you hold the hope? How do we help you make sure you keep going and you keep showing up day after day for your loved one, no matter how long it takes. And that's one of the most amazing things of working with parents and caregivers and really leveraging the love that they have is that it's so powerful. It's so intense. And so when we can really support parents and caregivers, we're leveraging this superpower in so many ways for the person that's struggling. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's sort of the five steps and moving through those pieces kind of in the moment and then afterwards and the refueling and reflecting to really support them to feel like they've got a plan in those moments. Because I think that's one of the things that is the trickiest for parents and caregivers is just getting into this place and saying, I, I want to help. I love my child more than anything, but I don't know what to do. And mm-hmm. when we're in this struggle moment, it feels like the bottom falls out, you know, yeah. and, and my brain just goes blank, you know, and it's like, okay, here's those five steps to take in that moment. Yeah. And it's really difficult. Like one of the things that you said is that piece of like the crisis mode. And I know like, you know, like parents will feel that way, that it feels like it's an ongoing crisis the whole time. Cause it's scary. Like eating disorders are scary. And there are sometimes that there are times of crisis, but when you're kind of switching that piece of like, it's also a chronic condition. So we can't be in crisis chronically. 
because we're going to burn out as caregivers. And so I really love that piece of being able to kind of take that step back. And although self-care, taking care of ourselves may feel like we don't, I can't, I don't have the time. I don't have this. It's the only thing that's going to allow us to sustainably being able to show up for our loved ones. Um, So it's not a selfish thing to do. It's actually a necessity. Yeah. I heard somewhere recently, and I'm not sure who said it. So I I don't know. I apologize of not being able to give credit, but I saw someone recently who said, self-care is childcare. This podcast episode is brought to you by The Balance Practice. The Balance Practice is a virtual eating disorder treatment center for folks across Ontario. We are a team of dietitians, therapists who specialize in eating disorder treatment. We work from an anti-diet, weight-inclusive, trauma-informed, collaborative approach so you can really be in the center of your care. At The Balance Practice, you can be seen for who you are, heard and cared for without judgment, and we really aim to create safe spaces for you to recover on your terms. If you're looking for support in your recovery or want to work on your relationship to food in your body, the Balance Practice is here for you. All right, let's get back to the episode. You know, and that idea of like, it absolutely is taking care of your loved ones when you take care of yourself. And it's just, it's so true. And like you said, especially with how chronic these illnesses and struggles can be, you can't operate in crisis mode. You're going to, I say to parents, this is a marathon followed by a marathon followed by three marathons. (laughs) Like it's just so it's, it's long, you know, and it's about can, how do we make this sustainable for everyone? Yeah. A hundred percent. I'd love to, if we can like touch base on that piece of compassionate block and caregiver burnout, Mm because it is something we see often in eating disorder care. So I'd love if you could maybe talk about it, like what it is and maybe ways that if we are there, what can we do and how we can maybe avoid it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that it's, you know, when we, when we have that sort of burnout or compassion fatigue that we see so often, I think a big part of that is sort of stepping back and saying, okay, this is, this is what this looks like. This is how this is manifesting for you. And kind of that step one of recognize is sort of going underneath that and saying, what is contributing to this for you? What is what is making this really hard? And part of it is, you know, are you taking care of yourself? You know, are you trying to do too much? And then, you know, what is, how much of this is, what is the narrative or story that you're telling yourself? You know, like I had a a parent the other day that said, I just feel like I'm stuck in this cycle of failure. And I know, I know. And we just kind of stopped and then we just took a breath and I said, wow, how does that feel to carry that all day? in that way. Right. And he's like, Oh, it makes everything so hard and heavy, you know? And so we sort of took a breath and said, okay, how do we take a step back and sort of recalibrate your sense of success and failure? And then from some of the data, one of the things that we know that contributes the most to caregiver burnout is feeling ineffective. And so it's not just seeing your loved ones struggle, but it's feeling ineffective and helpless in the face of your loved ones struggling. And so that's part of the reason that feeling like we can put some tools in the toolbox of parents and caregivers that when you feel like you know what to do, when you feel like you've got a plan and you've got a sense, 
that already starts to lift some of that, you know, that you start to feel more effective, even if your loved one is continues to struggle, which they will, because it's not, you know, a magic bullet, like anything, it's complicated. But that when you start to feel like, okay, in these really tough moments, I've got a plan that that really makes a change for parents and caregivers. But another thing that really contributes is this sense of self-blame that we see Mm -hmm. so often. And I think as we moved away from blaming parents and caregivers, thank goodness, right? Even in the like family-based treatment model, we would kind of say, okay, parents don't cause eating disorders. So don't blame yourself. All right, next. You know, (laughs) we, I think we really did a disservice to parents and caregivers because it's like saying to someone with an eating disorder, you know, Hey, just don't struggle with that. You know, it's just, it's just not how it works. And so Mm -hmm. that was one of the biggest things that was really a big shift for me too in my own work when I became became a parent was really kind of realizing in my bones what it is to feel that self-blame as a caregiver. And I would mm-hmm. I would give talks to parents and I would say, you know, if an asteroid hit my kids' daycare right now, I would blame myself, you know? And I'd look out at this like sea of parents and every one of them is nodding in agreement. Like, yeah, well, of course that makes perfect sense. And I was like, guys, can we pause on that for a second? Like that doesn't make any sense. And that's such the experience of being a parent and caregiver. And in some ways, you know, first of all, it's so normal, right? But in some ways, it's protective that we self-blame for a lot of different reasons that are kind of intended to take care of ourselves. There's this fantasy of control, like if it's my fault, then I can prevent it from happening again. Or if I really beat myself up over that thing that I did, maybe then I'll never make the same mistake and that will protect my child, you know, or I feel like to honor my child's suffering, I have to blame myself. There's so much that's happening there. And so I always start with parents of, you know, oftentimes those, when, when we show up and we feel burned out and we feel that compassion fatigue, it's so much because of what's happening underneath the fear that's happening, the sense of helplessness or hopelessness, the grief and the self-blame. And so how do we start to give space and sort of unpack those things Mm -hmm. so that we're not carrying them so heavily? And then of course the refueling, how do we make sure that you're taking care of yourself so that you do have access to your ability to be calm and you have access to, okay, what's that skill that I need when they're really struggling? We can't, you can't do it when you're on an empty, empty tank, you're going to end up broken down on the side of the road. Right. So really stepping back and saying, okay, what's getting in the way of me taking care of myself? Mm, Yeah. And I, I love everything you say. And I think it just really highlights the importance of like parents also getting their own support. Like when your, your loved one is struggling, it does approve a lot of things for you as well. And like you getting support is so, 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 so important as well. So important. It's so important for the parent and caregiver, but also it's like, you know, we talk about this idea of cascading attunement or like, you know, waterfalls that kind of spill into each other. That when you are getting support as the parent and caregiver, then naturally you can turn around and support your loved one better and then they can support themselves better. So all these things are connected and that again, really that you getting support not only helps you, but because you're in system with your loved one, 
when mm-hmm. you get help, it helps them by like uh, automatically. Mm-hmm. Love that so, so much. And I'd like to just like flip the switch a little bit and talk about like, what if you are a parent who is struggling with an eating disorder and you're trying to manage like recovery while parenting. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm sending you love Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, you know, parenting, these are two of the hardest things on earth, I think, right. Mm -hmm. Trying to move through eating disorder treatment and recovery and parenting, you know, separately, those two things are so big and trying to do them in tandem is huge. And that as parents, we're tasked with constantly making decisions about how to feed our children. How do we interact with our children's bodies? You know, how do we see their bodies? Well, you, you take them to the pediatrician and they pull out the weight chart and they clock it all, right? It can be so triggering. And I've had so many, I've had so many parents that I've worked with who struggled with eating disorders, you know, maybe in their, you know, adolescence or young adulthood. And then they did a lot of work and then, you know, felt like, okay, I'm in a pretty, I'm on pretty solid footing. And then something might happen with their child and that really triggers or kind of reactivates it. And so I will have parents oftentimes saying, gosh, I really thought I was good. I thought I thought I was good with all this stuff. I had done a ton of work. And then all of a sudden, you know, my my teenage son or daughter is struggling with body image or they're restricting or they're exercising. Oh my gosh, this is kicking up so much for me. And so it's a really, of course, right? Because parenting is by definition, it's so impactful for us to see our what our kids are going through. And if you're trying to balance that with your own treatment, with your own recovery, it's just so much to handle. And at the same time, I can say, you know, some of the adults that I've worked with, oftentimes their greatest motivator is to be able to do that work in Mm -hmm. honor of their child, you know, or to say, gosh, you know, I want to do things differently than maybe how things looked in the house that I grew up in. And I want to be really cognizant the messages that I'm sending to my children, even if it's around how I talk about my own body, how I interact with food myself, right? And so I think that it can be such a superpower because sometimes the things that we're willing to do in service of our children and taking care of our children is bigger than what we're willing to do for ourselves sometimes, you know, where it's like, okay, I've, I've sort of put this off where I've always really struggled with this. But now that I'm worried about how this might play out for my child, there's a huge motivation there. And so just really coming to yourself with so much kindness, giving yourself so much grace that you're doing two incredibly challenging things at once. And to also encourage anyone that's kind of in that space that that work is going to benefit their child. That anytime you take care of yourself, you unpack your own struggles, it will absolutely benefit your children and your loved ones. That's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking today. I feel like we could talk for like hours, hours and hours. (laughs) So I really do appreciate you being here. 
here and talking, you know, about all the things family is like, it's such an important part of the recovery process. So this is such a good episode. Where can people learn more about you and your services and what you do? Absolutely. So my website is BrynMillerCoaching.com. So B-R-Y-N MillerCoaching.com. And on my website, I have um, a ton of free resources. I have a newsletter I send out. I send out once a month that has, you know, articles, podcasts, support groups, and that's all free. And then I have an online course that is my response roadmap. So that can be downloaded and accessed anytime, anywhere. You can move through it at your own pace with complete privacy. And then I also have a cohort model where I move through the online course with a group of parents. And so if you're looking for more accountability, more community, a little bit more hands-on support, you Mm kind of get that best of both worlds of being able to have access to all of this information whenever, wherever you you need it, but also getting that sense of community. And then I do do some one-on-one coaching for parents and families as well. And that's something I'm able to offer internationally. And so really, really passionate about getting those resources out to parents and families in whatever form works for you and your busy, crazy life, (laughs) because you're obviously already juggling so much. And so just finding ways to make it, you know, as accessible as possible is a big passion of mine. I love that. And all of the links guys will be in the show notes. So you can also just scroll down and click and find Bryn on her website and all of the places. So before we get going today, we're going to go through fun questions. And the first one being, what is your favorite food? Oh my gosh. Grilled artichokes dipped in melted butter and warm chocolate chip cookies. No question. Like together or is that two oh separate? I mean, maybe the artichokes and then the cookies, but you know what? I'm, I'll, you know, I'll have it all. You're like down for anything. I'm down. <laughs> I love that. I love that. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Yeah. I love this. So fun. I would love to be able to just go back in time, not even deep into history, but just go back to different parts of my own life and Mm. sort of relive those little moments, but without being so in it, you know, and be able to kind of go back to those really special moments, especially with my kids and be able to kind of pop in without all the stress and worry and just enjoy it. Just sort of, you know, have a few minutes to kind of relive that. I don't know. I don't know if that's a superpower. I made it up, but honestly, it's the first time I hear it, but I really love it. Like it'd be cool, you right? moments. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be really <laughs> freaking cool. I love yeah. it. I love it. What is your favorite way to self-care or like refuel? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I love it. Refuel. I gosh, so many things, you know, being a parent and also a clinician, I feel like it's just a constant, like, okay, you know, this is got, and I, and I've got to practice what I preach too. Right. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm going to tell parents and caregivers, they have to refuel. So do I. So I do a lot of things. I, I meditate, I exercise, I, I journal. My most favorite, most fun way is I love hip hop dance class. I am terrible. I am terrible at it, but it just brings me such great joy and it's so fun and silly and it's 
it's my favorite. It's my favorite way to do it. <laughs> I love it so much. I love it so much. And then last question for you, because this is the Balanced Dietitian Podcast, what does balance mean to you? I think balance means, first of all, different things on different days, right? And making space that it's not always, it doesn't always look the same. But I think it's really, for me, about making sure that I'm showing up in my life in a way that's in alignment with my values and what's important to me. So if I'm saying, you know, family time is really important or, you know, getting some downtime is really important or some access mm. to things that are creative. Am I actually executing on that? Am I actually, you know, does my day-to-day life really reflect the things that feel most important to me? Knowing that that it'll ebb and flow and it'll be different things at different times, but really kind of finding the balance of all these different parts of my life in a way that feels yeah, reflective or in alignment with kind of what is most important to me at the moment. I love that so much. Thank you again, Bryn, for being on the podcast. This was such a great episode. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope that you really loved it as much as I did. And if you're wanting to have some family support, check out The Balance Practice. We may be able to help you if you are here in Ontario. We love working with families and partners to really support your loved ones and healing the relationship with food and their body. On that note, my friend, please, please take great care of you. And if you need any support, don't hesitate to reach out.